Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Carinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Okay, so what is this business here about Caesar Augustus and a census? Well, first of all, Luke is a historian, and according to Luke himself, he is giving us a historical and eyewitness account of everything that has happened from the birth of Christ to his resurrection and ascension. And so Luke is very careful to record these minute uh, historical details. He is recording them to tell us, Look, this actually happened. This is something real. It's a historical fact. It is not a myth or a fairy tale or something like this. But I think even more importantly, Luke is pointing out the fact that it is at the decree of this pagan king that Joseph and Mary are sent back to his homeland so that they can register. And in that decree, along with it, Mary and Joseph go back to the very town of Bethlehem, the very place where it was prophesied that Christ would be born in the Old Testament. We read in Micah chapter 5 this morning that God had determined long ago that the Messiah was going to be raised up out of Bethlehem. And it's interesting to note, I think, that at the pagan decree, at the decree of this pagan king, Joseph and Mary go back into Bethlehem and is there at that time while they're in Bethlehem that Christ is born. Now, this is not the thing that is motivating Caesar to create a census uh, uh, to force the people to go back into their homeland and be registered, but never, uh, nevertheless, I, he, I think he's doing it for a selfish motive and for a selfish reason, but nevertheless, God is working out his sovereign will in the midst of Caesar's selfishness. Uh, Uh, Caesar Augustus was a pagan Roman. He did not believe in the God of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he thought that he himself was a god. It was actually during his reign that worship began to be offered to uh, the Caesars as emperors, religious worship. And Caesar himself, in point of fact, took to himself the name Dominus et Deus, that is, Lord and God. Augustus Caesar became one of the most powerful and influential men in all of the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, it is under Augustus Caesar's reign that the Roman Empire was consolidated. He's the first emperor to be appointed that the whole uh, empire is underneath of. And during his reign, uh, the Romans experienced what is known as the Pax Romana, which was a uh, 200-year time of peace, uh, great peace and prosperity for Uh, the Romans. And during that time, the population grew to some 70 million. This is one-third of the world's population. And so here you have this man who is the most powerful man in the world at the time, most likely, and he is giving a decree that fulfills the will of God that was decreed to take place 800 years prior to this by Yahweh. 
Caesar does not, as I said, give this decree with intention of fulfilling the will of God. He gives this decree in order to fulfill himself. But again, God is at work to fulfill his, to fulfill his sovereign will in the midst of Caesar's selfishness. The text says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. While they were there, the time came came for her to give birth. Now, what time or day is this referring to? Well, it is the time and day that God had decreed that Christ would be born before the foundation of the world. God had planned the birth of Christ, as we have seen in our series. It was determined that God that uh, Christ would come. And as we read in our liturgy this morning, at the fullness of time, he comes and he is born of a woman. That is at the time that God has been appointed, uh, that, that God appointed. But uh, Joseph, this is something to uh, keep in mind, Joseph doesn't necessarily want to go back and register with his wife. His wife is pregnant. They're going to have to take this arduous journey together. <clears throat> Excuse me, but nevertheless... He goes in obedience to the, uh, to the decree of Caesar, and in so doing, he fulfills a decree that was decreed by God from all eternity. It resulted in the uh, birth of Christ in the very place that God had determined. And believe it or not, friends, uh, God is just as sovereign today uh, over the decisions and the decrees of men as he was then. Have you ever experienced the thing that we are talking about here in our text today? Somebody, there are people who have no intention whatsoever of doing the will of God, but yet God ends up working out his will in their lives through the decisions that they make. And friends, we ought to be encouraged by this truth. Because sometimes people make shipwreck of their lives. Sometimes uh, people destroy everything in their way, and they go through some very dark and trying times. And we wonder what's going on in all of that. But this doctrine shows us that many times God is at work in those very things to accomplish his will. Sometimes people are really selfish. Sometimes people are really mean and nasty, but Oftentimes, it is those very things that God uses to convict people of their sins and bring them to himself later on. Some of you look at your life in the past and wonder why you spent 20 or 30 years doing this or that. You look back and say, what was that 20 or 30 years about? Or you look at your life now and you wonder where you're going. Is there any meaning in the things that I'm doing? Is what I'm doing purposeful? Or you look at your life and you wonder why you have all this baggage that you have to carry around with you, or you wonder why it seems like you're not making progress in your life. But it is in those very things that God is oftentimes at work to accomplish his will. And it may not seem like it at the moment, but In hindsight, many times we will see the sovereign hand of God at work in those very things to accomplish his will in our lives and in the lives of other people in the world. So we can be encouraged by the fact that even knowing it seems really, really bad at times, uh, many times it is during those very things that God is at work to accomplish his will in our lives. 
Also, we can be encouraged by the fact that God appoints rulers into office and that he sovereignly rules over the decisions that they make. Let me say that again. We can be encouraged by the fact that God appoints rulers into office and that he sovereignly rules over the decisions that we make, that they make. We may look out into the world and see our leaders making some really bad decisions. We might worry about that. Or we may see them making some really good decisions. But regardless of whether they are good or bad decisions, God is at work behind those things to accomplish his purpose. Just like today in our story, we see that Caesar is calling people to go back into their hometowns and register for this uh, census. But as part of that decree, Joseph and Mary are forced to go back into their homeland, and then the Savior, Christ, is born. So sometimes God works through the decrees of tyrants, even the unrighteous decrees of tyrants, to further the kingdom of Christ in the world. Even if it is an unrighteous decree, it may seem unjust at the time, but it is through those things, oftentimes, that God stirs up his people and uses them to bring about change in the world. So number one, because God is the way that he is, even the decisions and the decrees of men are used by him in ways that are unexpected. We see that second point, because God is the way that he is, he uses the things in the world in ways that are unexpected in verses 8 through 14. Let's read that again. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You will notice that when God decided to reveal the message of the coming Savior to men by way of angels, he does not send them to Augustus Caesar He sends them to these lowly shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem. Shepherds were on the bottom of the totem pole as far as their society was concerned. Uh, They were not allowed to participate in many of the religious rituals that the other people did because they were shepherds and their work was dirty. And they were also considered to be untrustworthy, and so they could not testify in the court. So why does God send the angel to them? Why does God send the angel to them? Well, it has always been this way throughout salvation history. God chooses the things that are considered to be foolish by the world to shame the wise. He uses the things that the world rejects and that the world thinks are uh, insignificant to accomplish his will in the world. In the eyes of God, these men are highly esteemed. You will remember that God himself was a shepherd throughout the Old Testament. 
watching over his people. And oftentimes, he appointed shepherds to watch over his people. You can think of all of salvation history, and there are men like this. In the priestly phase, you have men like Moses and Joshua. And in the kingly phase, you have David, who himself was said to have been a shepherd. And even during the prophetic phase, you have Amos, who's said to be among the shepherds. God has appointed shepherds to watch over his people. But the wicked, unbelieving world has rejected them and despised them. And the corrupt religious leaders of the day, particularly in this instance, took up that task, and they become worthless shepherds over Israel. But these shepherds are different. These are men who were faithful to the will of God. They were watching for the Messiah. They were waiting for the Savior to come. And therefore, with these men, God is well pleased. They are highly esteemed in his eyes. But God descends even further in our text. I want you to notice uh, the birth of Christ in the birth of the one called the Savior. The King, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, um, is not this high and mighty man sitting in some lofty place in Jerusalem, but he is a lowly Savior. He is born a baby lying in a manger. And you have to get the irony in this story. Here you have Augustus Caesar, who is probably the most powerful man in the world at that time. He has the entire Roman army at his disposal. He makes decrees, and he does as he wills. He tells people what to do. He is the man who is said to have ushered in great peace to the world. But yet, when God gives the shepherds a sign about where, uh, how they can identify the Savior, he does not tell them to go look in some high and lofty place in Jerusalem, uh, in Jerusalem or in Rome, but he says, look, it is a baby lying over here wrapped in a blanket in a manger. This is the Savior of the world. This is the true Prince of Peace. Now, to understand how foolish and upside down this would have seemed in their eyes, you have to understand something about the way they viewed children in their days. Uh, children uh, were considered to be insignificant because they could not contribute to society in any meaningful way. And therefore, a baby who had to depend on their mother and father for provision and protection and care would have seemed even less significant. But yet here he is, the savior of the world, this little baby lying in a manger. Moreover, it says that he was lying in a manger. That is a feeding trough. That is a place where animals eat. So this would have, this would have been uh, one of the most despised, filthy, and unwelcoming places in all of Israel. But here he is, you have the Savior lying in the midst of it, Christ the Lord. Friends, why does God come to earth in this way? Why does he come through the most unlikely means? Why does he uh, come in seeming weakness and powerlessness? Why does he come in this humiliating way? Well, because God likes to take the things that the world deems to be foolish, the things that the world thinks are weak, and use them to save them. He uses them to save the world. Why? Well, so that the world will know that he is the one who has done the saving. It's impossible for them to have done it on their own. And he always works in this way. God 
uses the things that the world thinks are foolish to shame the wise, the things that the world thinks are weak to shame the strong. And friends, because of this, we can be encouraged. We do not need to be highly esteemed in the eyes of the world in order to be highly esteemed in the eyes of God. Think about these uh, lowly shepherds. They were on the bottom of the totem pole as far as their society is concerned, but yet God chose to show favor to them, to reveal the Savior to them. Uh, Not these people in the upper echelons of society, but just common, ordinary people like you and me, those are the people that God has chosen to save. People that the world oftentimes do not pay any attention to. And many times, if God does decide to save somebody who is highly esteemed out there in the world, well, I can tell you this, if they are highly esteemed in the world, it won't be long before they are not highly esteemed anymore by the world, right? Because the world despises the things of God. Again, God has chosen the things that are despised and rejected by the world to put to shame uh, the things of this world. Finally, this doctrine teaches us that God uses the things that the world looks down upon to drive us to him. He uses the things that the world looks down upon to drive us to him. Uh, Many times uh, we look at the uh, brokenness and the pain and the suffering and sorrow in our lives, and the world looks down on those sorts of things. Uh, but God does not. Those are the very things, oftentimes, that God uses to drive us to himself. And so, when we see a tragedy in a family, we can be encouraged. We can take heart, because God will take those things and use them to um, encourage everybody in the family uh, to look to him. He uses them to cause everybody involved to look to himself. And so, What are some of the things out there in the world that seem despised, that seem base, that seem rejected? Those are the things that God is going to use. Uh, God can take your addiction, your brokenness, your terrible marriage, your divorce, uh, your loss, you name it. Whatever the world deems to be worthless and insignificant, God can use those things to do things of ever lasting significance in your life. And that is just the way that he works. So he can be encouraged. So we have seen that because God is the way that he is, he uses the things in the world in ways that are unexpected. We see that final point, because God is the way that he is, in verses 15 through 21. Because God is the way he is, there are certain ways in which we respond to him that are to be expected. Let's read that again, verses 15 through 21. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God 
for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when the uh, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So what is the response of the shepherds after they receive this great revelation from God? <clears throat> they said, let us go. And in the Greek, there's a, a sense of urgency. They're saying, uh, let, it's something more like, let us go quickly. Uh, they have received direction from God, and now there is no time to waste. It says, in haste, they made their way to Bethlehem. So the shepherds are probably out in the fields in the region of Bethlehem somewhere, and they go in to Bethlehem, or in this place in the realm of Bethlehem, where there is a stable and a manger in it. Some of the earliest traditions say that this manger was located in a cave. Now, whether it was located in a stable or in a cave, uh, regardless, they go to this quiet, unsuspecting place, and there they find the Savior lying there. And in this section, we see that there are three different types of responses to this message from heaven given by angels about Christ. Wonder, meditation, and praise. You pick up on that? Wonder, meditation, and praise. So first, there is the wonder. Uh, the shepherds become the first gospel preacher, preachers, as it were. Uh, they, they take the message that has been delivered to them by God from heaven, and they go and preach it uh, to those that they see whenever they find the uh, Savior lying there, as God said that they would. And it says, the text says that it inspired wonder in those who heard it. They were marveling at the things they heard, that God had showed up in this amazing way and praised God, uh, praised, uh, the angels had showed up in this amazing way and praised God for this uh, amazing thing. They were uh, awestruck. They were astonished. Second, you have the response of meditation. Mary treasured uh, up these things in her heart. Mary treasured up these things in her heart. Uh, you will remember that Mary and Joseph have received prior revelation uh, about this child before. And so Mary is much more reflective about the things that she hears. She takes what she has heard and, and everything that she's seen and what she already knows, and she's got some things to think about. So Mary is much more um, um, reflective. She ponders these things. She meditates on them. She is thinking deeply about the implications of everything that she has saw and everything uh, that she has been told. Finally, you have the response of praise. It says, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So not only do the shepherds preach about what they have heard, but they go and tell other people about them as well. They don't keep this message to themselves. Um, and they also uh, praise God in this instance. They worship Christ. Uh, now when it says that they returned, I take that to mean that they went back to uh, the, the region in Bethlehem that they were, and there they praised God and glorified God, which most likely did not go unnoticed. Okay, So you have the three responses to the message from the angels. You have the wonder, you have the meditation, and you have the praise. A couple takeaways from this. First, uh, the shepherds did not take this awesome revelation and keep it to themselves. They went and shared it with other people. 
Uh, the gospel is the greatest gift that the world could ever receive. Uh, this is the thing that the world has been waiting for. This is what everyone is looking for, whether they realize it or not. And therefore, we're not to keep it to ourselves. We're to go and tell other people about it. There's a reason that the message refer- is referred to as good news or gospel. It's because it's the greatest news that anybody will ever receive, but we have to first go and tell them about it in order for them to know about it. So first, we take the message. Next, we have the three responses, wonder, meditation, and praise. Uh, And this was the response of those who first heard the message. It inspired these three things in those who heard it, and indeed it inspires the same things in those who hear it today, or similar things for that matter. And when we do these things, when we wonder, when we meditate, when we praise, it affects those who are around us. So first, there is wonder. Uh, I think that there is a sense in which we should all be continually amazed by the gospel. When we realize that what great lengths God has gone to to save us, as we see in our text today, we should be blown away. God, the second person of the Trinity, put on flesh and he was born as a little baby. And he was born to die so that in his living and dying, we might live and die no more. And that should blow you away. That should amaze you. And amazement is contagious. This is to say it rubs off on other people when you get around them. It catches on. So ask yourself, are you continually amazed by the gospel? Are you being amazed by the gospel? Have other people caught on to your amazement? Have other people noticed how amazed you are by this story? And if not, why not? If not, why not? Second, it inspires meditation. Now, granted, there are some people who are more contemplative than others. I know this, okay? I'm not the most meditative person. Although, I think that we all need to be doing this. We all need to be thinking deeply about the implications of the gospel for our lives. We need to be treasuring these things up in our heart, as it were. Have you ever done this? Have you ever taken a truth, maybe something that you've heard here on Sunday morning, or something that you read in your Bible throughout the rest of the week, or a message that you've heard and thought deeply about it, pondered it deeply, and seen what kind of effects it had on your life and the way that you lived out there in the world, that is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to meditate, to think deeply upon the implications of this gospel for our lives. Uh, the text says Mary treasured these things up in her heart. We don't know for certain, but it's very possible that Luke got this detailed account of what happened here from Mary later on. So maybe from Mary's treasurings, she later on told him these things in great detail when he recorded his gospel. Nevertheless, we have all of this uh, recorded here in great detail, and it still affects us today. It still affects us today. So our meditations on the gospel are going to be used in um, wonderful ways by God in the world. Finally, it inspires praise. It inspires praise. The proper response to the gospel is praise. Do you worship Christ? 